Today's reading is from Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Tina. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you all this morning. If you're new here, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we've been going through Exodus. I'll talk about that in a second. A uh, couple of things. Um, I just want to maybe ma- throw in my two cents on Hustle Phoenix. Uh, some of you know Oye Waddell, who's the founder and the chief executive officer of Hustle Phoenix. Oye actually served as a resident pastor uh, a number of years ago here at Arcadia. When I, when I first got to Arcadia eight years ago, he was a resident here. Uh, he did half of his time as a resident here, and then he went over and, and did half of it at Tempe. And so uh, a lot of the roots of Hustle Phoenix are actually uh, found in Redemption Church as well. Uh, he has a master's degree in education, and so that's probably one of the reasons why he's driven by being able to teach people, not only just about finance, but um, about God's word and, and the values of, of a gospel-centered uh, business approach, but also all the other uh, necessary uh, social capital needs that entrepreneurs all have. It's very well-rounded and very comprehensive, and I appreciate how many of you are involved in Hustle Phoenix, and they're always looking for great mentors and great help uh, people can actually teach. So uh, just uh, wanted to mention that. And then the other thing, much more serious than Hustle Phoenix, uh, we are having pie palooza this year. It's just on a different night. That's why we were getting excited about the pie. I wanted to mention that. We usually have that on Thanksgiving Eve. Um, We've had some people say it's a little bit challenging at times for uh, family. And I understand that too, because Jackie and I have family coming in as well. So we're going to do it the Thursday night before on November 21st. So mark your calendars for pie on that evening. Okay. So we're in week 12 of 15 weeks in the book of Exodus. We have three more after this, and then we're going to dive into Advent, if you can believe that Christmas lights are already going up uh, all around the city. It's like Thanksgiving isn't even going to happen, but we're going to have Thanksgiving. At any rate, let me pray, and we'll get into this. Uh, Lord God, again, um, we must stand under your word, because your word uh, is ultimately written by uh, your Holy Spirit, by your Son, Uh, It it is filled with wisdom, it is filled with authority, uh, and it is filled with what we need. And so as we we learn from you, as we proclaim the gospel, as we understand um, how many of the things that we see in the book of Exodus are merely a shadow or a foundation of the true gospel that is to come, uh, help us to understand that uh, so that ultimately, uh, as the book of Exodus uh, is desperately trying to do, it points us to you and it points us to your Son, We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we had the Ten Commandments, and then after that we ventured into 
uh, a little bit into some of the additional laws about altars and slaves and restitution. And today, what we're doing is we're continuing with those additional laws, three chapters of these additional laws. Uh, So we're going to cover chapters 22 through 24. Uh, All told, there are 613 laws that you could find and piece together through all of the the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books uh, of the Bible. Um, Many people talk about the significance or the symbolism of that number, 613. Uh, For instance, there are 248 what are called positive laws, uh, meaning that in that law, God is calling you to do something. You are to be proactive about, about do something, doing something. And then there are 365 what are called negative laws. Not that they're bad, but they're prohibitions. God is saying you shouldn't uh, do these things. And, and people have said for centuries that the numbers 248 and 365 actually point to God as creator. There are... Uh, 204, supposedly, I'm not a doctor, but I've read this in several places, there are supposedly 248 combination of bones and organs in the body, so that's the 248 positive laws, and then there are 365 days uh, in a year, and so all of that is pointing to God as creator, Uh, and so I bring that up this morning so that if you're ever on Jeopardy, you can run the Bible category, because that will be very helpful to you, so... Uh, also, I, it, through my research, I also found this out. I thought this was interesting. Um, Ohio, Virginia, and Mississippi all have state highways called 613. So they are the righteous states. Arizona doesn't have a highway 613. So Now, I know that sounds like a lot of ground to cover, 613 laws. Um, I joked last week that we were going to cover everyone. Obviously, we're, not, we're also not going to read every verse. There's no way. Um, but, we're, but there's really important... Uh, stuff here, and conveniently they're grouped somewhat by categories, and so it'll be easier to handle if we just handle them uh, by categories. I'll preview each section and category, maybe read a little bit in that uh, section, and and then discuss it some. So let's dig in. So the beginning of chapter 22, the first 14 verses, we find more laws concerning personal property and the responsibility that all people have to respect the property of others, including more laws about restitution. And so, uh, just to give you a little bit of a taste, look at 22, verses 6 through 9. This is fairly detailed contextually, that this would be in God's word, I think, when you, when you get into it. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed. In other words, a fire that you're responsible for gets started and somehow it jumps over to somebody else's grain that's being stored. He who started the fire shall make full restitution. That sounds pretty specific, doesn't it? If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and if it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, um, he shall pay double. And if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. What does this mean? I'll I'll mention this in a minute. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep or for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall but come before God, the one whom God commends, 
shall uh, condemn, sorry, condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Here's what God is saying. He's saying if you steal something or damage some, somebody else's property and you're found out, you need to pay restitution. And in some cases, you're going to have to pay double. It's your responsibility. But God is also acknowledging the fact that we're very clever. Has anybody in here ever stolen anything? And you don't need to raise your hand. Um, have you ever stolen anything and you didn't get caught? Okay? So you got away with it. Here's, here's what Tom used to say, Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors. He said, he said, all of us are clever enough to be able to fool other people. None of us are clever enough to fool God. And what God is saying is, I know exactly what happened. And I'm going to hold you accountable in some way for that. He is God. He is sovereign. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of Protestant guilt coming at you. You're going to walk around ducking all the time. That's not it. Remember the grace of Christ. But just understand, God sees everything. We might be able to fool our spouse or our friends or our employers or our employees, but we cannot fool God, and we need to remember that. And then verses 15 through 31 for the rest of uh, chapter 22 are laws demonstrating devotion to God and laws demonstrating the golden rule to other, others. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this section. Look at verses 18 through 27. You shall not permit sorcer a sorceress to live. Wow. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Kind of random. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You see the, sort of the restitution there. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear him, because I am compassionate. So we can see in these verses there is actually a theme. God has woven together this theme of devotion to his people and the devotion that his people are to have to him as well, and the honor that we're to show others. So there's this, this reminder of the covenant between God and his people, but also this covenant that in God we also have with others as well. And he takes this very seriously. And he says, I'm especially concerned about the weak and vulnerable. We see here widows and orphans and sojourners. Those are representative of anybody in our world that is weak and vulnerable. So the widow, the orphan... The stranger, that's another word for a sojourner. A stranger or a sojourner is one who is displaced, one who is out of place, one who needs a hand, one who needs a friend, one who needs an advocate, and one who needs a reason for hope. Lots of people like that in our world. And we might be the ones to be able to supply that for those people. An advocate, a reason for hope, a friend, a resource. Hustle Phoenix even. In verse 18, a sorceress is representative of the dark powers that are the enemy of God. So it's modern day Satanism, devil worship, 
and the attempt that you might have to curse others. God will not stand for this. And then verse 19, I'm just going to say it. Having sex with an animal. This is actually about God. This is actually about God. And it seems a little unbalanced and random. I understand that. Why, why this? Why did he pick this? And why is this so serious? Actually, the answer is pretty easy. God is a God of order. He is a God of design. And he is a God of purpose. And if you're not sure about that, read and study Genesis chapters 1 and 2 before sin infected our existence. God has a very specific order, design, and purpose. And even in the midst of our sin, we are to follow that. So he created this order, purpose, and design, including for sex. In Genesis chapter 3, sin disorders this order, and it disintegrates purpose and design. And there has never been and there never will be an acceptable order, purpose, or design for a human to have sex with an animal. It's a perversion of God's good order. When God said in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. Adam was there tending the garden alone. He was the first created human being. And God looked and said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, Adam did not then go and select for him an animal to be his complementary partner. He had that opportunity. God, before he made Eve, he brought all the animals to Adam so that he could name them and kind of check them out. Adam said, no, I'm not picking any of these animals. God created a woman for him. This isn't that hard, but it gets so muddy. And here's why it gets so muddy. Because many of you, myself included, I know, we are perfectly at ease with a law that prohibits us from having sex with an animal. We're just fine with that because it's not in our stuff. Sooner or later, though, God's going to get around to those prohibitions and to those, um, those commands, those proactive commands, where he starts messing with our stuff, where we're not so at ease with what he's telling us we can and can't or should or should not do. In other words, the sin in your heart, the sin in my heart, sooner or later, he's going to get around to that. May not be animals for you, but there's something for you. There's something for me as well. And so, whatever it is that we're disordering, that we're using for the wrong purpose, that we're messing up the design, God has something to say about that. And he will say something about it. And then verse 20 is one more reminder that God is God and there is nothing else that is God and that our devotion is to be to Him. Now, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the penalty for these offenses? It seems rather harsh. Okay? So, for sorcery, bestiality, bestiality, and for sacrifices to false God, it's execution. Why execution? Well, the simple answer is this. You and I are too casual about God and we're too casual about the reality of needing to submit to his order and his wisdom. And I know that sounds harsh, and it's offensive to many. Some of us, it just drives us crazy. If a loving God is so loving, why? Well, it's exactly why he would. Because there's love in calling us to his order and design and purpose. Because it's what's best for us. But all we do as human beings is we flout his order. We do. And then we mock it. We joke about it. We're way too casual. And not just today, but ever since Genesis 3. Do you understand, 
It only took eight verses in the book of Genesis after chapter 3 for the first murder to occur. Eight verses, and we have our first murder, and it was brother against brother. Okay? That's a, that's a picture of, of, of how troubled we are by sin. In the midst of this, God wants our attention, and it's amazing how hard it is for him to get our attention. For me, it took 27 years for him to get my attention, and, and I feel blessed that it only took 27 years. That's a long time. 27 years. Now, many scholars have written, I'm not exactly sure necessarily where I stand on this, but many have written that this execution, this death, if you look at the way it's written in each of those verses, he's really talking about a spiritual death that we suffer because we've been separated from God by our sin and that we can look at it that way. So they argue he's not saying it's a literal execution, but it's also true that many religious professionals in their day and even still today, take these verses as literal and believe that execution is what uh, should happen. The point in either case, however, is this. God is serious about our relationship with him and he's serious about his created order and and the giving of his wisdom to us and that we should submit it and grasp it and, and sit under it. And then verses 21 through 24, the wrong and the oppressed, if they cry out to God, God promises to hear them. And if we are the ones wronging or oppressing these people, there might be some unpleasant, God-ordained blowback because of that. And God's argument there, I think, is pretty good. It's pretty impressive. He's saying to the Israelites, remember when you were wronged for 400 years? Remember when you wanted retribution? Remember when you wanted help? Remember when you wanted your situation fixed? Well, they want their situation fixed too. They want help as well. In other words, God calls us to empathy. He calls us to empathy. And then let me just reread uh, 25, 26, and part of 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge... You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is the, his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. Now, this is most of you know, and the rest of you ought to know, I'm far from perfect, but these verses resonate with me, and I think I get this. Um, Tom, again, you know, Tom used to struggle with a lot of different things, just like anybody does. Uh, but he was upfront about how um, he didn't struggle with forgiving. He was a great forgiver because he understood how much he had been forgiven. And so he was really good at it. So he loved teaching on forgiveness. He said he always struggled to teach that section in Ephesians about how we're supposed to watch what we say to other people because he, he, you know, could be pretty sarcastic and have kind of a sharp tongue. And so he always struggled with that. But he was good with forgiveness. Um, I think I get this. Since becoming a Christian, I've had many, many opportunities to loan people uh, money who are in financial trouble. Before I became a Christian, I also had those, those opportunities, and I had a very firm policy. No. <laughs> Under any circumstances. No. But since becoming a Christian, uh, lots of opportunities, and, and so I've done it in many cases. And it's not, that I simp- it's not simply that I don't charge interest, but I've also never once expected to be paid back. Now, if you expect not to be paid back, sometimes I'll even tell the person I'm loaning the money to, 
I'm going to pay you back. They say, I'm going to pay you. I say, you know what? I'm not even expecting you to pay me back. If you do, that's great. But if you don't, um, d just don't worry about it. I'm not going to come looking for you, okay? Um, that puts a whole new light on how you're lending money to people. You don't lend money, first of all, if, if you know you're going to miss it, if you don't get it paid back. But also, it teaches you how to hold things loosely, which we're called to do in the faith, is to be able to hold things loosely, because ultimately it's not ours anyway, it's God's. And so it's, it's a way of learning how to hold these things that we, that we worship as idols and, and start to be able to hold them loosely. But like I said, it also means that I've never, I, I don't loan money to just anybody who asks, so please, I'm going to be in the back room, you won't, I won't be available after the service, so... Um, but the fact that I don't is also, is also biblical wisdom. I'm not smart about this, but God is. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of help in the book of Proverbs about how to loan money to people, and you ought to read it and follow that, okay? Uh, this also, by the way, some of you right now, you right now you're going, okay, I don't, I'm a little uncomfortable with this in my context. Let me find another context where I can go and apply it to other people. Okay, here you go. You need to understand, God is talking to individuals here. He's not talking to Wells Fargo or Bank of America. So don't go into the, your, your, your branch tomorrow morning demanding that they loan you money in a biblical way with no paperwork, no interest, and maybe you'll pay it back. Okay, that's not going to work. Okay, He's not talking to those businesses. He's talking to you and me. And again, don't, don't use that as a way to sort of place this off you so that you don't have to wrestle it with it and place it on something else. This is about God's individual people caring for one another. And then chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. That section is all about justice and fairness, no matter what, in the midst of court. So look at verses 1 through 3 and 7 and 8. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Verse 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Uh, very simply, here's what God commands from his, any of his people who are involved in a court proceeding, a trial, a negotiation. You are never to be swayed by social pressure. You are never to be swayed by a social cause. You are never to be swayed by the opportunity of benefit by siding with the wealthy or the powerful, and you are never to be swayed by the romantic idea of siding with the poor just so that you can stick it to the man. That's what God is saying. You are to be fair and just according to God's wisdom. So this is a good time maybe to bring this up. What we need to understand here is our obedience to these, to his wisdom, to his law, our obedience is not a response a response to the law or the command, but it's a response to God. It's about our relationship with God. We get so excited about lists and codes and things like that, and God's like, no, this is, this is a way of expressing this relationship. You have to look at the relationship first. This is about you and I being together. When we respond, when we obey, 
It's not about the rule or the policy or the law, but it's about our relationship with God and how serious we are about it. And that leads perfectly into the next section, which is chapter 23, verses 10 through 18. The importance of Sabbath and feasts. <laughs> I'm still on this Sabbath thing because the Bible is still on this Sabbath thing. Look at verses 10 through 12. For six years you shall sow your land and gather it in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let the land rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. So there's also this sort of Sabbath year as well, this seventh year. Uh, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may also have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may also be refreshed. So God talks about the Sabbath in chapter 16 before he gives the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then in chapter 20 he gives the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath is fourth, fourth on the list of the top ten, okay? So that's up there, pretty good. And then he hits it again here in chapter 3, 23. He's going to hit it again several more times before we're done with the book of Exodus. Yes, worshiping only Yahweh is important for his people. And, and, and the other commands are also important. The commands against stealing, murder, adultery, false witness, coveting. All of it brought up here again. But the Sabbath thing gets way more attention from God than you and I ever give it. We're good giving attention to the murder and the stealing and the, and the adultery. We give a lot of attention to that. We don't give very much attention to the Sabbath. He gives a lot of attention to it. Here's how the Old Testament scholar T.D. Alexander writes it. Anyone desecrating or not keeping the Sabbath was guilty of renouncing their special relationship with God. It's a way of saying, I can live this life without you, God. I can do this by my power, by my will. I don't need you. In fact, we do need rest and we need worship. And then right after these verses, verses 10 through 12, he goes in to talk about the feasts again. And we've talked a lot about the feasts in this series as well. Why is the Sabbath along with the feasts arranged rhetorically this way? Because both are important for remembering that God is creator and deliverer. That number seven, every time you see the number seven in the, in the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the Mosaic Law, it is specifically pointing us to this idea that God is creator because he created in six days and then rested in the seventh, which is a pattern for how we're supposed to live life as well. It points to God as creative, creator. And then, of course, the, the Sabbath, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the feasts and the festivals celebrate the fact that he is creator, that he is sovereign, and he is provider. And so if you're in an RC, and if you're leading or helping with an RC, if you're involved in an RC in any way, shape, or form, and you have meals at your RCs, like we do in, in the one that, that we attend, there's kind of an Old Testament vibe going on when you're eating that meal. In a sense, you're not just having table fellowship, but you're also pointing to God as creator, as provider, and as protector. There's an Old Testament feast ethos that's going on there. One other thing here, uh, God also introduces here uh, the fact that the way we harvest our fields or our bounty, the way we do our work, the way we produce, must be done in a way that is charitable to and benefits the poor, the sojourner, and the one who isn't as well-resourced as you. Uh, if you look in Leviticus chapter 19, which is a magnificent chapter Listen to verses 9 and 10 in Leviticus 19. 
God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. When you leave some leftover so that the poor and the sojourner can come in and collect for themselves, notice it's not just giving. It's that they still have to work for it. It's interesting how that gets set up. But when you do that, you are pointing to your relationship with God. You're saying, I am honoring God by doing this, by helping the under-resourced. Remember the story of Ruth? So Ruth went as a gleaner. She was poor. She had nothing. She was under-resourced, trying to take care of her mother-in-law. She was um, poor. And she went to Boaz's field as a gleaner, and Boaz gave her access to the field. Because Boaz was a man of God and he wanted to honor God and he submitted to his wisdom. And he was glad to help her family. Again, like the Sabbath, we are acknowledging who God is by following his commands and by being charitable to the poor and the more marginalized. And then, for those of you that have been reading through Exodus, my guess is that the last part of of verse 19 in chapter 23, you would really like me to mention it, so I will. Okay, here it is. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How many of you have ever boiled? Never mind. Okay, I'm guessing you haven't done that. Okay, why? 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 Why this? Okay? It seems random, but it's really not. It isn't in God's economy. You have to understand what he's doing here. Again, this is about God and his order, his design, and his purpose. It would be an abomination to God to take something that is for life, milk, and to use it for death. That's what he's saying. God is, we said this last week, God is pro-life. And so just the idea of using something that gives life in order to perpetrate death is dishonoring to God. That's why he does it. And this seemingly small random item here, again, references us back to his created order in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 before sin entered. And then verses 20 through 33, God promises to his people their future new home. And the language is that again of God as deliverer, protector, and provider. Look at verses 20 through 22 in chapter 20, uh, I'm sorry, 23, 20 through 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him, this angel, and obey his voice do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for, his na- for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary for your adversaries. So, we know that in 40 years, it takes a while, but in 40 years, God fulfills this promise. And they, and they take the promised land when they march into Canaan and Jericho in, in particular. But who's the angel? So we're not exactly sure. Some people believe it's Joshua who led them in, that Joshua is God's angel. But uh, other people think it's the figure or the being that Joshua meets on his way into Jericho. He's he's stopped by something, a man, an angel, a being. And, And he says to Joshua essentially the same thing that God said to Moses in the burning bush incident in Exodus chapter 3. He says essentially the same thing to 
uh, Joshua before he goes in, kind of affirming what he's doing is, is right and that God is with him. And, and so that might be the angel that's being referenced there. And if you're interested in more about that, read Joshua chapter 5. That's where that uh, story is recorded. And then all of chapter 24, verses 1 through 18, are what we might call the finishing touches. God calls on Moses now to seal the deal. He's presented, at least as far as we know, the law in this particular section. So verses 3 through 8, which is what Tina read, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Really? And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. There's an indication that Moses is the one who wrote these books. Okay, he's writing everything down. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. We're going to see more of this in the next three weeks. Then he took the book of the covenant and reading it in the hearing of the people, and, and they all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Second time they said, we're going to do everything the Lord says, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Twice the people say, we're going to do all that the Lord commands. <laughs> that didn't last very long. And, and the second time they said it, Moses threw the blood of the covenant onto the people. He started with a basin, threw it uh, in some other places, which we're going to see again in these subsequent chapters. Okay? But then he throws it on the people. And this is actually where Jesus comes alive again in this text, truly comes alive. A couple things first before we get into that that we need to know. No one can keep from sinning. Not a single amen. Okay, so no one can keep from sinning, right? Right? Okay. Um, if we were able to keep from sinning, it would be the same as keeping the entire law. Has, has anybody ever kept any entire law? Any law? Even, the, even your own personal moral code that you have personally constructed because you think, well, I can keep this. Even your own moral code you can't keep. We're constantly adjusting our own moral codes, you know? Just how stale was that yellow light, okay? Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Second of all, we can't do anything to make up for the fact that we're sinners. We can't. Once we've broken the law, we're done. There's this, this breach, this chasm, and we can't repair it. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough. We can't give enough. We can't clean ourselves up enough. There's nothing. And it doesn't matter what our intentions or our efforts are. We can't do it. We are completely hopeless and helpless in a state of sin. So what do we need? We need an intervention. We need an intervention. We need God to save us. I loved it when Tom used to do this. Um, Tom was not exactly a scholar, but he fancied himself... Um, somebody who could diagram a sentence, okay? So here's his favorite sentence to diagram. God saves sinners, all right? So you have the subject, God. 
You have the predicate, the action, saves, and then you have sinners. What's the sinners? The direct object, okay? Tom says, Tom, you say all the time, I love being the direct object in a sentence because the direct object doesn't have to do anything. I'm just being saved. You and I are the direct objects of God's love. That's a great place to be. But that's if we're in Christ. We have to know Christ. Christ is the one who makes this intervention. He sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts. He begins to change that that heart of stone into a heart of flesh that can see and understand and grasp. And that's done through Jesus' blood. The blood is that intervention. Moses is throwing the blood of atonement on the people. But you know, they had to keep doing that. They had to keep sacrificing. They had to keep bleeding these animals over and over and over and over and over. Hebrews says that. Hebrews says that the, the priests would stand and make sacrifices every single day, none of which could completely atone for our sin. And the reason we knew that is because they had to make the sacrifices every single day. Jesus does it once, bleeds, and he says, it is finished. It's the last sacrifice. His blood for us is our eternal atonement. So it's important in the Old Testament, but it's completed and fulfilled in the New Testament. There's a song that we don't sing very much anymore, but when I first became a Christian uh, in the Southern Baptist Church I was attending, we sang it all the time. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm glad some of you sang so that my voice wasn't the only one. That's frightening to some people. Again, Hebrews Hebrews says that what's happening here, which is beautiful and important and real, but it's merely a shadow of the real thing that's going to come. Moses is wonderful, but he's merely a shadow of the ultimate deliverer. The law is wonderful, but it's merely a shadow of Jesus coming and fulfilling that law for us so that we don't have to. The tabernacle, which we're going to get into in the next three weeks, the tabernacle is wonderful. The the house that God dwells in with his people, it's wonderful. But the tabernacle is merely a shadow of the new Jerusalem, which is to come eternally when Jesus comes again. That's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. I'll say it one other way before we close. I, I mentioned there's, there's 613 total laws. See, already I was trying to cut down the list of laws. There's 613 total laws. So this is very interesting reading for a, for a geek like me. There is a ton of material out there uh, by, written by different Christian scholars that talks about which ones of these 613 laws Christians are still obligated to keep and which ones are now irrelevant? Has anybody ever run into some of this material where, oh, some are moral laws and some are ceremonial? That's true. We don't need to worry about the ceremonial laws, you know. It's the idea that I need to clean my windows on Thursday, but I, but it's, uh, I, I need to do that, but, I, but I'm, I'm not allowed to, to wear linen and cotton mixed together. Which, which of those are still applicable? Because those were some of the laws. Maybe not the window one, but the the fabric one. There's a lot of time spent trying to make these arguments about which ones we should still follow that we're obligated to follow and which ones aren't. I'm personally not convinced of the importance of this argument at all. I'm just not convinced that it's important. I gave up reading this stuff after I left seminary because I didn't have to read it anymore. (laughs) 
But it's out there. It's out there. Now, why? Why? Two reasons. The first reason is James chapter 2, verse 10. James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, breaks just one law, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. So you could keep 612, or if somehow we're able to whittle it down to 300, you could keep 299, but the minute you break one, and we've all broken at least one, you've broken the whole thing. Again, this is, this is, like, this is like Tom's sermon day today. So Tom, Tom used to golf, and he was a pretty good golfer, but occasionally he would shank a ball, slice it, okay? And so... You, it's interesting to me, I, I don't play golf, I've always been interested by people who have houses right on a golf course and they put a big 8x10 plate glass window right next to a fairway, you're just asking for trouble at that point, in my opinion, okay? So a ball goes through the plate glass window and it makes a hole, but for some reason the whole window doesn't shatter, it just makes a hole about this big. So the idea would be that you could just go and call in a glass specialist and you're just going to fix that little hole. No, the problem is the whole window has to be replaced. Okay? You break one law, you're breaking the entire law. You, me, all of us. That puts us at a severe disadvantage when it comes to holiness and righteousness. Right? That's the challenge that we have. Jesus fulfilled the whole law. That was the point. He didn't come to condemn the law or to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it because the law is good. But he also came to do what none of us could do so that then he could go and be that perfect sacrificial lamb, the once for all lamb, that when his blood was shed, there would be no more sacrifices. And we come to him. So we don't have to worry about it. And one of the ways that we try to paper over the reality of us not being able to keep the law is this whole cultural thing that's been going on for decades about how people are just basically good. You hear this all the time. Well, people are just basically good. There's really only just a few truly bad apples. And then the words Manson and Hitler start coming up. Dahmer, maybe. But people are basically, if you just peel away all the layers, you get there, right? people are basically good at their core. No, we're not. We're basically selfish and sinful at our core. That's the problem. We're not basically good. We know how to paper over things, okay? And, and here's one way that I know that, that, that we do think, has anybody ever gotten pulled over for speeding? <laughs> so you're on your way to a meeting that you're late for, and you're speeding, and you get pulled over. You're just fuming as you're sitting there. And the police officer's kind of sitting in his car, you know, doing that thing where he sits for a few seconds, and you're like, come on, let's get it over with. Come on, you know. And he kind of saunters up. License and registration, please. And you got it already, you know. And you're getting, you're just fuming, you know. You're just, you're absolutely fuming. And you're thinking, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I was, I was speeding for a good reason. I'm a good person. You're thinking that. Some of you have actually said this. I know you do because I know a lot of police officers. It's amazing how often people say this when they get pulled over for speeding. Amazing. They say, why don't you go out and catch a real criminal? You know what some officers say right back to that? I did. I caught you. You're breaking the law. Well, it's not a fair law, and I had a good reason. Okay, just, just start extrapolating out 
with everything else that we do, okay? Now, this is, not, this is not a Sunday of condemnation for you. That's not the point. The point I'm trying to get at is to understand what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, through his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection. He's taken care of all of that papering over, all of that um, rationalization that we go through in our mind. He's taken care of all of that. And he's taken care of it also for those of you that are sitting there going, yeah, I am really messed up and I need an intervention. Here you go, Jesus. Right here. It's the intervention that every last one of us needs. And he paid a price to do it. But he did it because this was set before him and he had joy about it, we were told in Hebrews. He was glad to do it for us, even though it was really, really hard. So the question is, have you come? Do you believe? Let's pray together. Lord God, we are thankful for your word and its truth and God we man just watching how Exodus plays out and how it continues to point us to you and to the reality of your son that this is this is so real and so challenging and so beautiful all at the same time and yet it is a shadow of the true truth as Francis Schaeffer would say we are glad for that so God I pray that we would we would come to Jesus that we would understand that your intervention for us is everything that we need. God, help us to do that. Give us the courage to do that. Melt our hearts. Reform our minds. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.